0: amen amen good to see you all here today how's everybody doing are you feeling good good well i have a word for you from the lord and i want to see who who the, who the biblical ninjas are if you're a biblical ninja you can do this flip open to psalm 119:148, and with the other finger uh, flip over to mark 6 Uh, Mark six forty-seven. Psalm one nineteen one forty eight and Mark six forty seven. But you've got to be a biblical ninja to do this. Some of you need some more training. Mm-hmm. Are you there? All right. Psalm one nineteen one forty-eight says, Through the watches of the night my eyes do not close, that I may meditate on your promises. Through the watches of the night, My eyes do not close, that I may meditate on your promises. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night, the NIV says, that I may meditate on your promises. And then Mark chapter 6, verse 47, When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars, because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. But when he saw them walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Father, I speak blessing over this house today in the name of the Lord. Bless each and every heart, every mind every life, every soul. Thank you, Father, that you're establishing us in the truth. I give you praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Two mornings ago, as I was in prayer, the Lord gave me the Psalm 119 verse, Psalm 119, 148. Through the watches of the night, my eyes don't close that I may meditate on your promises. And it's interesting to me that David says this. This is a psalm of David, the 119th psalm. It's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Right smack dab in the middle of the Bible as well. David was a great king, a visionary leader. Now just speaking in natural terms, he was a great king and a visionary leader. You don't even have to be a believer to believe that. You just look at his accomplishments and you look at the, the age of David. The, the years of David was the golden age of Israel. David established the kingdom. David was the king, first of all, that as a little boy, he was killing lions and bears. You know, you could pretty much tell great men and great women but, you know, before they're 20 years old. I mean, you can see what they're doing when they're 15 and 13 and 12, and you can tell, man, there's something about this guy. I mean, he was killing lions and bears as a teenage boy out with his flock. He heard that Goliath was taunting Israel, and he went out there and got a few rocks and a slingshot. Now, I've seen some kids with slingshots causing trouble, but I don't see any of them attacking 10-foot giants. But David went out and killed a giant that the entire army of Israel was scared of with a few rocks. David was the one who was undefeated in his entire career as a military leader. Undefeated. Never lost a battle. And he became the king of Israel, and he took Israel to the greatest height of its entire life and history as an empire, as a nation. So David was a visionary leader, and if you know any visionary leaders, I mean real visionary leaders, there's some heck of fake, you know, imitation visionaries, you know. But a real visionary leader, if you're around them, they eat, sleep, drink, and breathe their vision. I mean, they wake up in the morning thinking about it. They go to sleep at night thinking about it. And during the day, they think about it. And if you want to talk to them, you got to talk to them about their vision. And I mean, everything, the conversation will turn to their vision. And when they're sitting down troubleshooting, they're troubleshooting some obstacle that's in the way of their vision. And when they're reading, they're reading some book that helps them understand how to accomplish their vision and how to obtain their goals and how to get to the place where all of their dreams come to pass and their vision comes to pass. And on their day off, you know what they do? They relax and dream about their vision. And they go. Yeah, I remember my wife and I used to go to Walnut Creek on our Mondays on our day off. And we'd go to Walnut Creek and you know what we do? We'd go sit at Barnes and & Noble's and get books. And, 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 and those books we're reading and we're talking about how to, how, to, how to grow the church and how to develop the ministries and how to, how to do the mission that God had given us. I mean, a real visionary leader eats, sleeps, drinks, breathes, thinks, speaks, meditates on their vision because they understand that the accomplishment of a great vision takes 100% focus. But here you have David, the greatest visionary leader in the history of Israel, and he is not laying awake throughout the watches of the night meditating on his vision. He says, I meditate on your promises. There's a very important distinction that we're going to make this morning that we're going to establish this in your mind and in your heart. This distinction must be made. Now, we've said that the soul is comprised of the mind, the will, and the emotions, and we've said that there's an infinite quality or an infinite character to the soul. Each aspect, each member of the soul, the mind and the will and the emotions, can expand infinitely. The mind, you look at the greatest men and women of history, the greatest intellectual minds of history, they all died in the middle of their next great accomplishment or their next great contribution. But what if Einstein could have lived a thousand years? How many great breakthroughs? What if Aristotle would have lived 3,500 years? What if Aristotle was still alive today? How many, how many more great accomplishments? Karl Barth, the greatest theological thinker in the history of the church, died in the middle of his next great volume of church dogmatics. The greatest philosophers that have ever lived died in the middle of their next contribution. Their minds were still expanding. The only thing that limits the infinite expansion of the mind is the death of the body. Your emotions are continually expanding. You know, I know people, I've known people who've been in therapy their entire lives and still processing what happened when they were five. You know, if you could live a thousand years, you would still be discovering new things about how you felt when you were five. And I mean, it would be new. Like, you would have new breakthroughs, new discoveries. Why? Because your emotions are an abyss. There's no bottom to them. They expand limitlessly in every direction if there's an infinite quality to your emotions. Your will... The will, the human will expands infinitely. The human will is dire- is pointed in this direction and buildings come up out of the ground. The human will is pointed in this direction and new technologies, breakthrough technologies come through. The human will is, and we've, we are so confident in the power of the human will that we just know we can't wait for tomorrow because we know that tomorrow's technologies are going to far outstrip today's. And so we're constantly dreaming of what are they going to be able to do in the future? Man, a hundred years from now, a hundred years from now, you're Cell phone's gonna be a microchip implanted in your ear right here. Hold on and give him a call. Hello? <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm getting a fax. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean the human will expands infinitely, limitlessly. You know what the self-help movement is? Really, when you're talking about the self, you're talking about the soul. It's the soul help movement. Let me help you develop your mind, your will, and your emotions. That is, in the natural, we have come to discern the limitless capacity for expansion that exists in the soul. And we've begun to worship it as God. Because whatever you give your life to, that's an act of worship. If you give your life to the expansion of your mind, you're worshipping the mind. If you give your life to the expansion of the heart and the emotions, you're worshipping your emotions. If you give your mind to the expansion of your will, you're worshipping your will. And whenever you hit a a crossroads or come to a problem or or have a a decision to make, if you immediately start trying to think it through, it means that you are dependent upon the, the power of your mind to overcome this obstacle. Or if you're trying to ask, what do I feel? And here's the problem with the modern-day concept of vision. It's completely soulish because I can do it without God. I was doing counseling with a couple recently, and they were telling me about a, a problem they were having in their marriage, and, and they were saying, "I wanted this, and I felt, and you know I, I just really wanted it, and my heart wanted this, and I really felt like we were supposed to do this. And the husband said, "But I wanted this, and I, my heart wanted, I just felt like this is what we're supposed to do." And, and, and he said, "This is what I wanted, and this is what she wanted, and our hearts and minds were different, and we didn't want to change any, each other, and we thought, you know it was wrong to try to, to work each other into that place where we agreed, and so we just kind of separated in our hearts from one another, and, and that's where the struggle began. And what I said to them was, I heard what you wanted and I heard what you wanted, but I never heard anything about what God wanted. I've heard your mind and I've heard your mind, but I didn't hear anything about the mind of the Lord. See, the thing you and I need to understand is that God has a soul. Do you know that? God has a soul, which means he has a mind and he has a will and he has emotions. Ephesians 5, 17 says, do not be unwise but understand what the will of the Lord is. Yeah. Second Corinthians one twenty seven says, "Who has known the mind of the Lord that he might instruct him?" Or Philippians two five says, "Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." Right, and then in Genesis six six it says, "God was sorry." that he made man, and he was grieved in his heart, meaning his emotions. He feels, he thinks, and he wills, which means he has a soul. And in order to worship God, it means you have to take your mind and bring it into submission to God's mind, take your heart and bring it into submission to God's heart, and take your will and bring it into submission to God's will, so it don't matter what you want is what God wants, doesn't matter what you think is what God thinks, and it doesn't matter what you feel is what God feels. And until we learn how to take our mind, will, and emotions and bring it into subjection objection to god's mind will and emotions we haven't worshiped i don't care how many songs we sung or how passionately we sung them i'm gonna let that sink in for a second you know i've been listening to myself because i've been creating these radio programs on friday nights and i learned that i'm the king of the dramatic pause (laughs) because i will drop a truth that's just so deep that it's just got to sink in for 10 15 seconds (laughs) but that don't work on the radio i gotta cut that out so I'm trying to cut down on my dramatic pauses. Okay. So we've got to learn how to submit our souls to God. That is, we have to, I have to learn how to take my mind and submit it to God's mind. Take my emotions and submit them to God's emotions. And take my will and submit them to God's will. Now the, the question is, how do I get inside the mind, will, and emotions of God? How do I know? Well, it's easy. When I build my life on my own vision, now when I develop a vision, it has to do with what I want. What do I want in life? Well, let's see. I want to be able to provide for my family. And I want to provide nice things for my family. Is that a bad desire? Absolutely not. I want to live in a nice house and drive a nice car. I want to wear nice clothes, and I want to adorn my wife. I don't want to hear my wife say, I wish I had. I want, I want my, if I hear my wife say that, I want to say, bam, whoop, there it is, you got it. (laughs) I want to provide for my wife and my family. I, I, you know, I want, I want, I have these things that I want and these things that I want to achieve and places that I want to go. How do I get inside the mind, will, and emotions of God? Well, there's one gateway into the mind, will, and emotions of God for my future, and that's called promise. You see, David's vision for Israel started when God said, I have anointed you king of Israel. And I will build you a house. You're not going to build me a house. And I will give you victory over all of your enemies. It was the promises of God that framed the vision of David. My question for you is, where does your vision come from? Does it come from your own desires or did it start with a promise from God? If your vision doesn't begin with God saying, I will. If it doesn't begin with an encounter with God in which God said, I will. Then it's a soulish vision. And not a vision from God. And the only way to make it a vision from God is to root it in the promises of God. To root it in the promises of God. So David says in Psalm 119, 148, throughout the watches of the night, my eyes don't close, that I may meditate on your promises. David says, I'm not laying up awake at night meditating on my problems, which is so easy to do, isn't it? I mean, especially in the nighttime. I mean, I'm cool during the daytime. Don't get me wrong. I can tell you in the daytime, I'm standing in faith. You okay, Pastor? Oh, I'm good, I'm good. All good. I'm standing in faith. We just believe. We know God. But at about two o'clock in the morning when I wake up and I'm at my brother-in-law's house. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my brother-in-law and I love his wife, my sister-in-law. and I love their house and it's beautiful. It is nice. My daughter just loves their dog, you know, Plato. She calls him mung mung. It's Korean for bark bark. It's in Korean mung mung, you know. We came home the other night. My daughter was asleep in the car on Friday night. We came home, and she slept all the way back to their house. And as soon as I pulled in the driveway and turned off the, off the motor and I opened her side door, she woke up and went, Mung, Mung, where's the dog? <laughs> but every man wants to provide a place for his wife and child, his own place, right? Now, what am I doing at night? Am I laying awake at night going, oh, God, oh, God, why did this and why why that? Or do I meditate on His promises? If my vision is rooted in His promises, then what I need to meditate in is what He promised rather than what I want, what I desire, what I need, because all of those things reside in the soul. But the promises are in the Spirit. And so when my soul begins to move into the Spirit, all I can hear are His promises. And I just begin to meditate on His promises. God, you said you were going to give us a five-bedroom house. I just begin to meditate on that. You said you were going to give us a five-bedroom house. God, you said. Now, it's interesting. David says throughout the watches of the night, and I I want to illustrate for you how difficult it is to meditate on the promises through the watches of the night. Now, the thing you need to understand is that according to the the Hebrew clock, the night is divided into four watches. It starts at 6 p.m., and the first watch of the night is from 6 to 9 The second watch is from 9 to midnight. The third from midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch of the night is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Now, I have crossed the Sea of Galilee on a boat before. First thing you need to understand about the Sea of Galilee is that it's not a real sea. It's more like a lake. It's the Lake of Galilee. Okay? When you think of a sea, you think of this vast body of water that takes days to cross. You can cross the Sea of Galilee in a boat in one hour. We crossed it. We went from Galilee to Tiberias on a boat. All the way across it, we sang, we played, we laughed. And an hour later, we landed in Tiberias, and we went through the town of Tiberias and had a good time. Then we got back on the boat, crossed back over. An hour later, we landed back in Galilee and went to our hotel and had a wonderful... So we went back and forth. We went across in the morning and back across at night. And that's how easy it is. It took an hour. Now watch this. In this passage in Mark chapter 6, it says that evening Jesus sent them out on the water, which is about 6 p.m when evening came, and Jesus, he had just got done feeding the 5,000, and he puts the disciples on a boat, the same, the same story is in John chapter 6 as well, he goes up to a mountain to pray, and while he's up there, he's alone with the Father, as soon as the disciples head out into the Sea of Galilee, it's said that the wind started to blow against them with such ferocity that it took all of their strength I mean, they would strain and strain and strain for an hour, two hours. Are we almost there? No, we made it ten feet, dog. (laughs) Look at this. Look at this. Are are you there? Are you in Mark chapter 6? Look at verse 47. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake. So that's about 6 p.m. Who knows what time they left? And he was alone on land. Verse 48. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them about the fourth watch of the night. He saw them in the middle at 6 p.m. and at the fourth watch of the night between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., 9 to 12 hours later, they're still there. And they're straining at the oars. Come on, push! You ever felt like you came to a place in life where you were straining with all of your might, expending all of your energy and getting absolutely nowhere? <laughs> you know what that's called? The Bible has a word for that, that kind of a season. It's called suffering. <laughs> that's revelation right there. And he sees them. He watches them for hours. He's kicking it up on the mountainside, having a time with the Lord. And he sees them out there in the middle of the lake, just straining. (laughs) Beads of sweat pouring from their head. And the whole time they're probably thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? (laughs) Don't bother me, guys. I'm with the Father. Hallelujah, Father. He's just on the mountain. You ever felt like God is just having a wonderful time up there and you're down there in the middle of the lake about to break the oars you're straining so hard. You're doing everything, and, and, you're, and when you're at that place, your mind starts playing tricks on you because yeah. you start trying to spiritualize it yourself. You know there's nothing worse when you, than when you try to take something and make it spiritual yourself. You know, you start trying to figure out what the Lord's trying to teach you in it. Or, okay, I know what it is. I'm straining. You know, I need to let go and let the Lord do it. And then you stop straining and the boat starts moving backwards. Whoa! And then you start pulling it forward. You, you know? Oh. <laughs> and he's watching them. First watch of the night goes through and he's still watching. 9 p.m. comes. Second watch of the night and he's still watching. Third watch of the night he's still watching. Somewhere in the middle of the fourth watch of the night, he says, Okay, Father, I think I'll go to them now. Let me ask you a question. What is the purpose of that 9 to 12 hour period? Because some of you are still at about the 5th hour. You're going to go home into another 4 to 7 hour season of suffering. <laughs> and and a day with him is a thousand years. So <laughs> So I don't mean hours. <laughs> What is the purpose of that season when you're straining? And and get this, they're not out of the will of God. Jesus put them on the boat and said go. That's another part of our trying to spiritualize it. Well, maybe God didn't tell me to do this. Maybe he didn't send me here. Maybe we should have taken another boat. Maybe he wants us to jump out and swim. Maybe we're supposed to fly. Maybe we should have waited with him. Peter, this is your fault. Then we start attacking each other, don't we? I'll I'll tell you what the purpose of this season of suffering is. The purpose is to kill your flesh. Look at your neighbor and say, God's trying to kill your flesh. And it won't die easy. And God is so patient. He is so patient. I will stand here and wait till that flesh is dead. And I don't care how hard you cry out to me. How loudly you weep. I'm not moved by your tears. You can't see it, but I see it. Your flesh is dead. Well, fine, God. Forget you then. Okay, keep rowing. <laughs> forgetting me ain't going to change the fact that you are in a period of suffering and forgetting me ain't going to change it and remembering me ain't going to change it. Sometimes you just got to row it out. You just got to row it out. Yes, it's the flesh but it is a season in which the Spirit of God is helping you kill your flesh because you can't do it in your own power. I was looking at Romans chapter 8, verse 18 this week, and it hit me in a different way. Romans 8, 18, this is what it says. It says, For I perceive that the suffering of this present time... In the NIV it says this present suffering or our present sufferings. In the NKJV it says the suffering of this present time... In the Greek, I looked at it in the Greek, and it says, the suffering of the now season. Look at your neighbor say, the suffering of the now season. (laughs) There's two Greek words for time that are used in the New Testament, the word chronos and the word word kairos. The word chronos has to do with chronological time, 3.15 p.m. That's chronos. Meet me at noon. That's chronos. But the word kairos has to do with a moment of divine significance. Look at your neighbor say, a moment of divine significance. A kairos moment is a moment of divine significance. It is a moment that has been established by God, that has been preordained by God to work something divine in you. It is a work of the Spirit of God. And typically, a kairos moment has to do with a moment of revelation, a moment when God is revealing something. Where where Paul said, at just the right time, God sent his son into the world. He's talking about, or in the fullness of time, Christ was born of a woman. In the fullness of time, Christ died. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He's talking about the Kairos moment, the moment of divine significance in which God did it. And it had nothing to do with any earthly calendar. It was simply a time, a significant divine time that God set apart and said, Bam! I'm going to do it now. The moment you got saved, that was a kairos moment. You might have heard the gospel a thousand times before, but in that kairotic moment in which God's divine purpose unfolded in your life, all of a sudden it made sense to you. But here, Paul is talking about a divine moment of suffering. The suffering of this present kairos The divinely appointed time of suffering. This divinely appointed time that you're out on the lake straining at the oars with all your might and you're making no progress. Paul said, I perceive that the suffering of the now season is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul says the suffering of the now season is simply a preparation for glory. God is preparing you to be a bearer of his glory. He's preparing you. He's preparing you to go to a higher place in his presence. He's preparing you to stand in his authority. He's preparing you, but he's allowing you to go through this extended period of being stretched in order to kill your flesh. Because you can't kill it on your own. Sometimes the Lord comes to you through at the fourth watch of the night, and the question is, when you're going through that 9 to 12 hour season of divinely appointed suffering, what gets you through it? See, what we tend to do is we're walking through this divinely appointed time of suffering, this 9 to 12 hours, and we spend those 9 to 12 hours trying to figure out how to get out of it. Yeah. I, 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 so if I can come up with the right strategy... Yeah. In other words, we're depending on our own soul for deliverance. Come on, mind, figure out a way to get me out of it. Come on, will, just press harder in this direction. Come on, emotions, just, just, uh, just you know, pick yourself up and stop getting so discouraged. And, and you know, we're going to get out of this thing. Come on, strength, keep rowing at these oars. Come on, soul, get me out of this. Yeah. David says, I don't waste my time trying to figure out how to redeem myself through the watches of the night, when I go through that divinely appointed season of suffering, I meditate on your promises. My eyes don't close so that I may meditate on your promises. And many of us here in this place, our eyes have closed because we stop meditating on the promises. Our eyes have closed because we don't don't even know what the promises are. Listen, if I were to ask you, what are God's promises over your life? Could you answer me? Could you sit down and write down a list of promises that God has given you for your life? What are you standing on? He said, well, I'm confident in the Lord. Well, what is the basis of that confidence if you don't have any promises from him? When it looked like our child had died when my wife was pregnant and the doctor said she had a miscarriage, we had a promise from God. When, it, when, when I fell and my daughter's head hit the concrete and she had a big old knot on her head and we were afraid, we rushed her to emergency thinking maybe she had brain damage. My wife just kept saying, no, God promised a healthy child. God promised. God promised. Lord, you said. God, you said. And I see at least three avenues through which we can obtain the promises of God to stand on. Number one is this book. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. In other words, when God gives a promise, he signs it at the bottom. He's just waiting for your signature next to it. All of them, no matter how many promises God has made, Paul says, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us. God is waiting for you to say amen to his yes. Sometimes we got to get a hold. No, you said that my God will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So when I go through a time of lack, that's what I'm meditating on through the watches of the night. Instead of trying to figure out how am I going to provide for my family tomorrow, I'm going to meditate on his promises. No, 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 no. You said my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's what you said. That's what you said. You are my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I'm anchoring my soul. Remember last week we talked about anchoring your soul. You've got to anchor your soul in the promises of God. And learning how to get them from here. See, the problem is so many of us want rhema words. Prophesy over me. But you haven't opened this book. You got about 12 translations of it at home, and all of them got dust on them. You want a a word from God? You know what happens? Karl Barth said that the Bible is a waiting room. You know, a lot of times you get discouraged because you open the Bible, and you don't feel nothing when you read it. You're waiting for something. You think you open it, and something's supposed to happen. No, no, no. I wait in the pages of Scripture. I take the word and I meditate on it. When God gave me Psalm one nineteen, one forty eight, I knew something was there, but I didn't know what it was. It just, it just it was just there, but I didn't feel anything until I started meditating on it. Through the watches of the night, my eyes do not close that I may meditate on your, pre- on your promises. Through the watches of the night, and all of a sudden, at a certain point, the Holy Spirit quickened it to my heart. Revelation started to happen, downloading into my soul in the form of wisdom, and all of a sudden, I had something from God that I could hold on to. It's a promise from God, and that's how I anchor my soul in it. You've got to get into the words of Scripture and make them your meditation, and listen, you've got to come to the place where it's no longer David's word but now it's my word. Now it's no longer me reading that David said that he stayed up through the watches of the night meditating on God's promises, but now Benjamin can say, Lord, through the watches of the night, my eyes do not close that I may meditate on your promises. You know why? Because last night at 2 o'clock in the morning, I was still meditating on his promises. And I fell asleep and woke up at 4, and you know what I was doing? Meditating on his promises. And when I woke up this morning to go, you know what the first thing in my mind was? His promises. I'm meditating on his promises. And what happens when you grab the Word of God and you get it in your spirit, all of the something David's word becomes Sean's word. It becomes Victoria's word. It becomes Will's word. It becomes your word. Amen. And so the word of God is the first source of the promises of God. Just because somebody hasn't called you out and prophesied over you is no excuse for you not anchoring your soul in the promises of God. That's secondary anyway. And there's been this whole prophetic movement in the body of Christ. People run into the altar with notebooks, waiting to get prophetic words, writing them down, listening to them through the week and meditating on them, but they won't open the Bible to save their life. And it's ungrounded. The prophetic word is secondary. This word is primary. In fact... You want to learn how to hear God speak prophetically? Learn how to understand scripture. Get it into your heart, and you'll begin to recognize the prophetic word when it speaks to you. Amen. But then secondly, God will speak to you directly. God will give you promises to frame your life. You know, I loved Jackson Sinyanga. He pastors this powerful church in Uganda, and my wife and I went to a pastor's conference, a pastor's retreat, where he was the speaker. And he said, he was talking about the promises of God in one of those mess, one of those messages. And this is what he said. He said. Before I started my church, the first thing I had was a calling. The second thing I had was a list of promises from God, and I wrote them all down. God said, I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this. He said, I wrote down all those promises of the Lord, and he says, 20 years later, I looked at that list, and God had fulfilled every one of them. And he said, when I realized that God had fulfilled all of those promises, I laid on my face before the Lord for three days, and I thanked him just laid on his face before the Lord for three days saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Went right down the list. Thank you that you did this. You promised and you performed it. You promised and you performed. it. He said, after three days, I got up and then all of a sudden it hit me. What am I going to do now? I don't have any more promises to stand on. He said, so I laid on my face for three more days saying, now, Lord, give me some more promises. And the Lord gave me a new list of promises. And he said, I'm in this next season where I'm just, I'm standing on these promises and waiting for God to perform every single one of them. You know what? Now you're a new kind of visionary leader. Instead of focusing on your vision... Now you're focusing on God's promises, and everything around you makes it seem like the promise failed, but even when it looks like the promise failed, you still stand and say, no, you are not a man that you should lie. You are not the son of man that you should change your mind. I am holding on to the promises. I am standing on the promises, and I'm not going to let them go. The kind of visionary leader that says, "At night, I'm going to meditate on the promises. In the morning, I'm going to think on the promises. And if you talk to me, you're going to have to hear about the promises that God gave me. And when I daydream, I'm going to daydream about the promises. And when I take a day off, I'm going to rest and remember the promises." That's good. Second Peter chapter one verse four. Now we know this passage. It's it's I, you know I I've, I've probably quoted it into the ground. But Second Peter chapter one verse three. Uh, It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. Verse 4, through these He has given us His very great and precious promises. What is these, first of all? Through these, His glory and goodness through which He called us. Through His glory and goodness, He's given us His very great and precious promises so that by them, so that through them we may participate in the divine nature. You want to talk about moving into the spirit? God has a soul, but he is spirit. That is his nature. You want to participate in that and be what Paul calls spiritual? That is people who are of the spirit, people who are after the spirit, people who walk in the spirit through the promises. The promises is your gateway into the life of the spirit. If you don't grab a hold of a promise from God and stand on it, you've got no way of getting into the Spirit. It's through the promises that you participate in the divine nature. Matter of fact, Jürgen Moltmann said that in the Old Testament especially, every time God revealed himself, he revealed himself in the form of a promise. When he revealed himself to Abraham in in Genesis chapter 12, he says, get up out of your father's house and go to the place that I'll show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. When he offered Isaac on the altar, God said, In blessing I will bless you. In multiplying I will multiply you. And I will make your descendants like the sands of the sea and like the stars of the sky. Every time God reveals himself, it comes with a promise. And so, if you want to anchor your soul in God, you've got to start with His promises. You've got to learn how to get a hold of the promise and anchor your soul in it. And escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The promises are not only the gateway to participation in God's nature, but it's the way of escape from the corruption that's in the world. Now, get this. Every form of sin comes from unbelief. And every form of unbelief is a failure to believe one of the promises. Yes. So it's in forsaking the promises that we find ourselves in unbelief. And it's in that place of unbelief that we find ourselves in sin. Because yeah. if God's promised you a wife and your soul is anchored in that promise and you fully believe it, that means that you're not going to get caught up in any other kind of sexual sin. Yeah. Why? Because your soul is anchored in that promise. Yeah. But when your soul strays from that promise and you stop believing it, now God's just left me to figure it out on my own. So I guess I better take care of myself. And if God's promised you finances, then you don't have to beg, borrow, and steal. Every form of sin comes from failure to believe a promise. And so Paul says, where is it? It's uh, 2 Corinthians 6, I believe it is. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises dear friends let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Why? Because of the promises. The promises are so great that our only reaction to the promises is to forsake everything else. I don't need nothing else. Look at what God's going to bless me with. Look at what he's promised me. You didn't get that, did you? Because you should have been shouting, dancing in the aisles and doubling your tithe. <laughs> well, I guess it'll hit you at 3 a.m. <laughs> Hebrews 6, 12 says, I don't want you to be sluggish, it says in the NKJV. In the NIV it says lazy. Don't be lazy. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. The promises are inherited through faith and patience. It's still the third watch of the night and you're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and you're just rowing rowing your heart out straining at the oars it said the disciples were don't worry the fourth watch of the night is coming he's not going to leave you out there forever it may seem like it he cares nothing about your timetable i'm learning that lord i need you to do this by then then And God threw his head back and laughed. (laughs) And he who sits in the heavens will laugh. He's not worried about your timetable. He's worried about the death of your flesh. God, I need you to do this by then. Well, I need you to die by then. You know how you know your flesh is dead? when you got no more strength. I mean, these disciples, their muscles were, man, they, they probably look like, like bodybuilders the next day. Can you imagine straining at the oars for 9 to 12 hours? <laughs> Dell said he does it all the time. It's just all under that table muscle. you set yourself up for that one bro (laughs) finally jesus said all right it's time he goes walking to them out on the water you see that the storms happening all around him and the storm is stopping them but it's not stopping him the storm that stops you doesn't do nothing to the lord he just walks right through it he's chilling he's just strolling And it says he intended to pass them by. I love that part. The Lord is cold sometimes. That's just cold-blooded. Why did he intend to pass them by? Because when we're doing it by our own power in the flesh, the Lord just walks right past us. It seems like you got it here. As you were. And it says they cried out in fear. They were terrified because they thought they saw a ghost. They thought they saw something demonic, but it was actually the Lord coming to rescue them. You know, most of the time when the Lord comes to rescue you in the middle of the storm, you think you saw a demon. Just when you think you see the devil coming to destroy your life, it's actually the Lord coming to rescue you. But he says, do not be afraid. Take courage. It's me. You know you're in the depths when the Lord comes to you in his glory and power and still has to tell you it's him. (laughs) I mean at any other time if the Lord shows up in his glory you're like oh and you bow down and start worship but when you are in the deepest depths where you you are in such a pit that you can't even discern the presence of the Lord when he comes walking up to you and he has to tell you it's me. Meaning, they did not arrive at that place of, revel- of revelation because they prayed a lot. They were so deep in the depths that they couldn't even strain out a prayer. They weren't on the boat saying, you know what, we need more Bible study. Get out the Bible, Peter. Read us some scripture, John. If one of them would have let go of the oars, the other one would have slapped them and said, put your hand back on that oar and keep rowing. You ever been going through such a trial that you didn't even have time to seek the Lord? Here's the problem. We should be praying. And don't get me wrong. We should. On Friday nights at 7 p.m. <laughs> and Sunday mornings at 10.30 What I'm saying to you is that even there, we don't know it, but that becomes a work. The mind says what you need is more prayer. And if you exert your strength and strain at the oars in the place of prayer, then we'll get across this lake. Let me tell you something. There's only one thing that's going to get you across the lake, and it's Jesus coming, walking to you on the water. And he walks right through the storm at the fourth watch of the night. And you know why he came? Because he had made a promise to them. Remember when he called Peter? It was right out there in the middle of that same lake. Peter had fished all night and caught no fish. Jesus had taught all night and he had a whole bunch of fish on the shore. People. And so Peter comes in from his fruitless all-night fishing just as Jesus is finishing his fruitful all-night teaching. And Jesus gets on the boat with Peter and says, shove out for a catch. I'm going to show you how to be fruitful as I'm fruitful. He says, Lord, I fished all night and caught no fish. He said, I didn't ask you what you've done. Cast your net out again. What Peter didn't realize was that there was one fundamental distinction. He was, Peter must have been thinking, okay, listen. This is the same boat that fished all night. This is the same water and the same net. So how am I going to throw the same net out into the same water and have a different result? Isn't that insanity? Doing the same old thing in the same old way and expecting a different result? What Peter didn't recognize is that the difference was not in the water, not in the net, but it was in the boat. Jesus was now in the boat, and he wasn't in the boat last night. And when Peter throws out the net, more fish jump into the boat than he had ever seen. And Peter falls on his face and says, go away. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. You know what he was saying? Lord, if you can see where the fish are in this lake, you can see where the sin is in my heart. Please go away. I cannot bear the fire of your holy stare. You see me. I'm a sinful man. Don't waste your time with me, Lord. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. Come and follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. If in the middle of that storm, Peter would have stopped and remembered that promise. And so wait a minute, the Lord said he's going to make me a fisher of men. There is no way this storm can kill me because he's not done making me a fisher of men yet. So he's got to come walking on water to me. He's got to come to me somehow. I don't know how he's going to get from that mountain. It hadn't even crossed their minds that it was possible for the Lord to walk on water to them. That was not a part of their grid. The Lord will come to you in ways that are not a part of your grid or your reasoning. You don't even think it's possible. But you don't have to even figure out what's possible and what's not. You simply have to remember the promise. No, he said he's going to make me a fisher of men. When you're on a plane and there's turbulence and everybody thinks the plane's going down, if you got a promise, you say, there's no way this plane's going down. That promise hasn't come to pass in my life yet. My life is indestructible until the promise is fulfilled. That's why I have so much confidence for you. You find yourself in financial despair, God has to provide for you. He's promised to use you in mighty ways and he has to prosper you in order to do it. It's because of his promise. He's got to come through for you. He can't leave you there. Impossible. And here's the final thing I'll say, maybe. (laughs) Oftentimes when God gives us a promise, we we feel a little carnal about it until we recognize that it ain't for us. God's promise for you ain't for you. Yeah. That's, you got to get that in your head because if once you get that in your head, God can start making outlandish promises to you yeah. and your flesh can't get a hold of them. Yeah. I remember I was riding in the car with my uncle and my uncle reached into his pocket, pulled out a wad of cash and said, here you go, Benjamin, put it in my hand. And I said, whoa, I thought he had blessed me. Oh, oh, and I start counting it. I'm like, man, it's like $8. I was like seven years old. So, you know, back then, you know, seven years, you know, 1984, 1983, you know, $8, that was a lot of money. About 20 minutes went by. I put it in my pocket, I felt like a G. You know, I felt like, man, I, you know, I'm a baller. I'm a baller. I'm thinking about what I'm going to buy at lunchtime on the playground. And uh, all of a sudden, 30 minutes later, he pulls into the gas station. He says, go fill up the tank. I said, all right. I held out my hand. He said, what you holding your hand out for? I said, you got to give me the money. He said, I already gave you the money. I said, oh, but I thought, he said, no, you thought that was for you? Go fill up the tank. Well, how much of it? Well, how much of it? All of it. It's not for you. Look at your neighbor say, it's not for you. It's not for you. The problem is when God blesses you with abundance and you hoard it. And he says, Go fill up the tank and you say, Psh that's my eight dollars. But if you give me another eight dollars, I'll give you a tithe of it. Oh. Actually I'm in a new dispensation. I only give you a tithe if I'm stirred in my heart to do it. Oh. Ten months ago, the Lord spoke to my wife and I. Lord spoke to my wife. (laughs) Well, whenever the Lord speaks to my wife, He speaks to us because we won. The Lord spoke to my wife. Said, "Let your condo go, and go home and start packing, and I'll give you a five-bedroom house." And when she told me that, I felt kind of carnal. What do me, Sonny, and Alethea need with a five-bedroom house? what do we need but I thought thank you Lord I receive it I receive it but I feel a little bad about it but I receive it hallelujah I receive it but I still feel a little carnal about it and I felt secretly um, like uh, like yeah God really wants to prosper me you know what I mean like man five bedrooms I'm dreaming about what we're going to do with five bedrooms can okay, me and my wife are going to sleep in the master bedroom or is going to have hers I'm going to have my office Sonny's going to have her office that's four then we'll have a guest room And then all of a sudden in November, the Lord put it in our heart to bring this young lady into our home. We brought her in for two weeks. And she's still living there. Last November. And then in February, we brought in another one. And then the Lord put two more in our hearts to bring in. Only now we ain't got a house for them. And then the Lord gave us two more. How many is that? Six plus me, Sonny, and Alathea, We said, we need a five-bedroom house. (laughs) No, it's got to be at least five bedrooms for the vision that God's given us. And all of a sudden I realized, Lord, you knew that vision a year ago before I could see that it wasn't for me. I don't get in office anymore. In other words, it wasn't about me fat-catting. God had a kingdom vision for us, for our family, that he was preparing us for in advance by calling us to open our heart to that level of blessing. Yeah. And so how does he do that? He gives us a promise. Yeah. And now you just stand on the promise. Okay, I don't know what it's for, but it must be for something more than just me and Sonny and little Aletheia. And now all of a sudden we see what it's for. But the reason God told us that in advance is because he knew we were going to have to stand in faith for a five-bedroom house at this moment. And so now what are we doing at this moment? We are anchoring our souls in hope. No, God, you said I will give you a five-bedroom house. You said I will give. And so will we settle for less? No. And this is the last thing I'll say. And I mean it this time. Jesus said in John chapter 15 verse 7, if you abide in me and my word abides in you. Oh, by the way, i got to go back for a second before I say this. (laughs) I said that there were three avenues through which you can get the promises of God. I always do that. Number one, number two, and peace. See you later. (laughs) I get people emailing me, texting me, face, what was the third one? (laughs) First of all, the word of God, the written word of God. Number two, God will speak to you directly. Number three, God will speak to you prophetically. God will speak to you prophetically. Most of you know that Tuesday, Tuesday night my blood pressure went up. I had a moment of panic and fear and unbelief. And my blood pressure went up and I was feeling woozy and nauseous and headaches and vomiting. I'm not vomiting, but I had diarrhea and, and couldn't stand up on my feet. And f- What y'all laughing about? Y'all you know, ain't never had that before? <laughs> TMI. I'm just keeping it real. Too real, huh? Too real. But anyway, I was having a tough day. Let's put it that way. And I'm laid out on the floor. Couldn't even stand up on my feet. My blood pressure was 165 over 106. And and, I, you know, I'm, and, and, and I'm just having a tough time. And I'm laying there on the floor. And my sister-in-law comes in. And she, and she says, okay, the Lord's telling me to pray for you now. And she begins to pray for me. And all of a sudden, the prophetic word comes through her so clear. And the Lord speaks through her and says, bring glory to me, my son, for I am with you. And I will be glorified in this ordeal. I am about to bring you abundant blessing. Only keep your eyes on me. I needed that word. Now here's what happens. We have such an episodic view of spirituality that you get a prophetic word like that and you forget it the moment you walk out the door. Jesus said, if you abide in me, John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, The, the reason... The reason we get discouraged and disappointed and all of these things and we find ourselves in unbelief is that we stop abiding and we don't let the word abide in us. We don't let it live in us. We don't cling to it. We don't hold on to it. You know, we were talking about this in Ethiopia when the, this crowd of, of 200,000 people and hundreds of people are being healed but hundreds of people weren't. And a lot of times what tended to happen is people would leave Discouraged. And the last message the Lord gave me was this. No, you've, none of you are leaving empty because you received the Word. Yeah. And you take it home. I don't care if the miracle didn't manifest. You're looking for the miracle, but the miracle's not your inheritance. The Word is. Yeah. He never says, let my miracles abide in you. But he says, you let my Word abide in you. And I said, you go home and abide in the Word and it will come to pass. And many people testify that they went home and got healed later that night or the next morning. Or one guy said as soon as he crossed the threshold of his house, his eyes opened and he could see. God is in the process of, uh, he, sometimes there are delayed reaction manifestations of the promise. Why? Because he wants to give us time to anchor our soul in that promise. But most of us, receive, can you remember the things, those of you that have received prophetic words, can you remember those words? Are you still standing on them? Can you remember why? The thing I realized is that God never speaks only for now. Nothing God says is only for right now. It's always in preparation for a season that you don't see coming. And we always think, oh, God said this and then I went through that. Praise God he prepared me for that. No, he said that not only to prepare you for that, but for something else and something else and something else. That word is supposed to abide in you for the rest of your life. And so, as we abide in the word and we anchor our soul in the promises of God, we make his promises our meditation throughout the night. We wake up in the morning thinking about his promises. When we talk to people, we remind them of his promises. And when somebody's going through a tough time, we remind them of God's promises. And there are certain individuals you can see the promises of God all over their lives. I mean, they just walk in a spirit of promise. You just see it. You just get close to those individuals and feed off of it. And let that promise get on you. And learn how to pursue his promises in his presence. Learn how to pray, God, give me your promises, and learn how to hear them. Learn how to get them from Scripture. Learn how to receive them through other believers. Learn how to receive them directly from God. And as you get a hold of his good and precious promises and you stand on them, you anchor your soul in his promises, it keeps you through the watches of the night until Jesus comes walking on the water. And you know what? Once Jesus comes walking on the water, you don't need the promise anymore. Because you got the fulfillment of it. You got the promiser. Amen. Amen. You got the promise giver. Amen. 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 Bow your heads with me.